You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQ. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. So the biggest misconception for those that are starting a firm is that they enter into government procurement, which is dollar signs in their eyes, right? They see that the government has a budget of $4 trillion a year, and they think that they can get a cool couple of million out of that pie. And they say, easy breezy, look how much money there is. How could I not get a slice? But what they don't see is just this hypersaturation of the market, and that there are hundreds, if not thousands of companies doing the exact same thing that they do. And besides that, and not understanding that they have to have differentiators in order to be competitive, they really don't, as you said, see the rigorous bid and proposal process by which to win a contract. And they don't see the barriers to entry and and things that they have to do compliance-wise. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. What's next for government contractors? Well, that's the question we're going to answer today with the co-founders of The Pulse of GovCon, Amber Hart and Lisa Shea Munt. And we've seen a lot of trends take shape in 2022, which marked President Joe Biden's second year of being president and our third full year of the COVID-19 pandemic. How has the new administration and the global pandemic impacted government procurement? Just like it's important to follow the kinds of products your consumers are buying and how much they're spending in the commercial world, It's important for contractors to stay on top of government initiatives and follow how the federal government plans to allocate their funding in this next fiscal year and beyond. In this episode, we're going to talk about the infrastructure bill and where some funding opportunities still remain, IT and cyber initiatives, and where the state and local government is looking to allocate their funding as well. We're also going to talk about unique ways that you can leverage government contracts and also strategies to leverage contracts you might not even be on right now. And I'm not sure there's a better pair to bring on the show to talk about this topic. The Pulse of GovCon is an advisory firm that focuses on providing actionable business intelligence tools and data to empower government contractors. They really do, pardon the pun, have a pulse on the industry. So I'm excited to have this conversation and see where we're headed over the next few years. Ladies, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks. I, one of the things that I've I've noticed, and I, I can't help but notice, is all three of us are at a very similar similar point in our lives, where we all have kind of newborns or, or infants, or I, I guess a couple month olds at home. Um, so we're all kind of knee deep in the chaos. How's that, how's that going for you guys? Uh, we thought we were tired before. We're especially <laughs> tired now. I'm sure. I have no doubt. I, I I'll tell you, and to any listeners out there who are parents. Um, so definitely follow both of them on on Twitter. But Lisa, your your Twitter feed has given me some really good comic relief over the past few months, as you've been sharing all the ins and outs of of what it's been like through pregnancy and 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 having your baby. So I I want to thank you for that. Um, but uh, but hopefully hopefully as they as they're getting older, it's getting a little less chaotic, and it'll be on to different types of chaos. Here's, here's hoping, right? Uh, exactly. But it's been nice actually us having that experience together. Um, it's pretty cool. We've known each other as business owners and then new moms and, you know, it, it's been, it's been a journey 
with the business, but a journey becoming mothers as well. And it's been kind of nice having that support system in, in both of us, I think. That's awesome. And we're going to get into that a little bit later. But um, speaking of your business, um, tell me a little bit about kind of how the Pulse of GovCon came to be. Lisa, we can start with you. I'm, I'm just curious, how did this start? And I think, I, did I see on, on LinkedIn, you guys are celebrating your fifth anniversary. Was it yesterday? That's yes. really impressive. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so how did it come to be? Uh, well, Amber and I have known each other the past, I guess, 12 years, really, since we both started in industry. I was actually Amber's intern, despite being a year older than her. Um, so she really taught me everything that I knew about proposal management when we worked at a defense contractor, like a small business back in the day. Um, and so then just have kept in touch. You know, she came to my wedding. Uh, we were friends through multiple different jobs that we had. Uh, and then five years ago, she came to me, had an idea, said, let's start a business. I said, no. She said, let's start a business. I said, no, I've been bullied by Amber for the past you know, decade. So I just went with it. <laughs> and the pulse was born. It was actually called the pulse because I thought it was just going to be Amber's company. So her last name is Hart. Cute, right? The pulse with Amber Hart. Uh, and yeah, that's how it came to be. That's very cool. And so Amber, I mean, so what a way to celebrate your fifth anniversary. You recently were just brought up to Capitol Hill to testify. Tell me, tell me a little about that. What were you, what were you discussing and how did that whole thing, I guess, materialize? Yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it, it was kind of a whirlwind. Um, so we got approached, uh, by Madison services group, um, shout out to, um, Elizabeth and her team there. Um, we had worked with them before in the past on, um, Lizzie's testimony recently, I believe to the Senate. And she came to us and said, Hey, we have this opportunity to talk about category management in front of the house small business committee. I've read your articles. You guys seem really passionate about this. Do you want the opportunity to come in and speak? And uh, Lisa and I just jumped at it because it's been a bucket list item of ours for a really long time. And it's really kind of the core of what the pulse is about. And so it was a uh, sprint. I've, we've never done this before. And actually, it was perfect timing because we, we doubled in size that same week that we got notice. Um, and so our whole team was able to jump in, tackle it, write a fantastic oral and written testimony, make sure I was prepared. And, you know, there's nothing that prepares you for that. And it was a very cool experience. It was an honor to represent the industry and be able to share our opinions and trends and information with the committee. And, you know, we hope that, that some good comes out of it. Well, you guys, yeah, you guys yeah, doubled just, in size too. That's, that's incredible. What were some of the things you guys were talking about, Lisa? Oh, yeah. So I just wanted to, to add to that, you know, this whole idea of how we were asked to testify on the Hill is really a testament to the type of network of people in government contracting really trying to make it better. It was truly a referral to a referral. Um, you know, we had um, a great partnership with Republic Capital Access, and they knew that our mission, our model, our initiatives were really all serving the purpose of trying to make federal contracting better and actually connected us with the Madison Services Group. Um, and, you know, it's because they knew that we are honest about the problems in government and industry almost to a fault. And that honesty has just yielded some really great partnerships over the years. So, so tell me, what are some of those honest, honest thoughts going on that, that you guys were testifying about? I'm, I'm really curious now. 
Well, they came to us saying, you know, what is the impact on government-wide acquisition contracts on small businesses? Are you for them or against them? And the way that we typically approach any sort of trend or, or issue or initiative within government and procurement is we, we tend to have pretty strong reactions and feelings towards them. So of course they said, well, what do you think of GWAX? And we said, we hate them. Just kidding. Then we had to pull back and realize that obviously we don't hate them, but there's still some issues and there's some problems that can be solved with them. And, and that's what it's really all about. You know, it, it's about identifying the problems, but also talking through the solutions just to try to make procurement better. Got it. And that makes complete sense. I mean, the betterment of the the industry. And so you guys work with a lot of different companies um, with with your uh, with your roles. I'm really curious to know. So what are some of the big biggest misconceptions they have on the market in the process? I know when I was at Imix Group, I used to work with companies, large, small, medium. And one of the things that I found, especially on the small business side, is not only just the lack of education on the procurement process in general, not even not even getting into strategy around contracts and, and everything like that, but just the, the understanding of the process, but also an unwillingness to really kind of jump two-footed into it, into the deep end and, um, and really commit, right? I'm curious to see what some of the things are that, that you guys are finding. Oh, please, let me take this because this is a soapbox for me. You know, <laughs> the biggest misconception that we see, and it's kind of twofold, right? One is for people that are starting firms and others that are established in the market. So the biggest misconception for those that are starting a firm is that they enter into government procurement, which is dollar signs in their eyes, right? They see that the government has a budget of $4 trillion a year, and they think that they can get a cool couple of million out of that pie. And they say, easy breezy, look how much money there is. How could I not get a slice? But what they don't see is just this hypersaturation of the market and that there are hundreds, if not thousands of companies doing the exact same thing that they do. And besides that, and not understanding that they have to have differentiators in order to be competitive, they really don't, as you said, see the rigorous bid and proposal process by which to win a contract. And they don't see the barriers to entry and, and things that they have to do compliance wise. And of course, they always come in and they treat federal sales with commercial practices, and that just doesn't fly in our realm. And so that's just for newbies. If you're talking about people that are established in the market, the biggest misconception that we see is this idea that you have to spend a ton of money to be successful. I think us as government contractors have become numb to the concept of spending tens of thousands of dollars on services to try to simplify or automate the process when you can still be successful utilizing free .gov sites and just really rolling up your sleeves. Interesting. So it when you're consulting with these companies, what are some of the recommendations that you're making when you're saying you don't have to spend a lot of money? You mentioned some of the free .gov sites. Are there other things that that you're recommending they can leverage to to get in and impact the market without dropping tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars? Yeah. And that's Amber, that's your specialty, right? Like how do you find buyers? What websites do you go to? What have, How many have we clocked that are out there that have contract information on them? Yeah. So when we look at these things, there's around like 93 different sources that we look at. And I think when Lisa's talking about, hey, automating the process sometimes, you know, sometimes I think just in general, we use technology for technology's sake. And sometimes it actually makes it a little bit more complicated than it needs to be. And, you know, things just like training your your people up 
on how to manage this process, using Excel sheets to create a good CRM tool, using these tools and just going through them every day, you know, things like forecast or acquisition.gov or challenge.gov or things like that, right? Um, Reviewing them. Sometimes these systems are really helpful, but sometimes they just make a process for processes sake. And we've just made it very complicated to make a really, you know, to kind of make a process a little bit more streamlined where, if we just pulled back and maybe did a little bit more training, maybe focused on the why a little bit more in this industry, there wouldn't be such a need to drop tens of thousands of dollars on consult, uh, you know, services, which is probably counterintuitive for us since that's our business. Yeah. Um, but we definitely believe in teaching a man to fish rather than just taking advantage of them and taking all their fish and going home. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, you touched on something that I'm pretty passionate about when we look at kind of the complexity around it. Obviously, there's there's some aspects of that complexity that are necessary, right? Especially for transparency sake and, and um, equity sake. But I think, and, and you kind of touched on it, that the government just gets in the way sometimes, um, almost to their own detriment. I'm curious yeah, to get, totally. get your opinion, um, actually from both of you. We saw the streamlining of this process probably to the most degree that we've ever seen it during COVID to get some of these very vital technologies and assets in the hands of um, employees and and the the stakeholder citizens. Do you think that's something that they learned from over the past couple of years that will be enveloped into longer term kind of foundational strategy, or do you think that was just an anomaly? So there's two parts to that question. I want. I, I'd like to. I'm going to give my opinion on the strategy that they all took and how I think it was helpful and hurtful. Um, I'm going to start with the hurtful. So. A lot of people, and if we can do a quick comparison with the PPE uh, PPE loans um, or PPP, not PPE, my goodness. Um, All the acronyms. All the acronyms, um, right? A lot of businesses that I know that were able to gain access to that loan program were the ones with direct access and already knew their banker, right? Or their their loan officer or something like that. Uh, And then a lot of small businesses that were, that actually needed the money um, you know, were had a really hard time getting access to it because they weren't as uh, on a one-on-one relationship with their bank. The same kind of happened with this streamlining during the COVID process. There were a lot of contracts for a lot of money uh, given out based on just direct one-on-one relationships because that's just how it was easy to turn and burn them um, without a lot of due diligence on the back end of Do these people actually do what they say they're going to do? I mean, we've all seen the articles, right? But let's put those aside for people that got money that literally don't have hand gloves and just took advantage of the the federal government that way. But a lot of those contracts were also just given to well-known sellers and vendors, you know, based off of just, hey, I've worked with them before you know, let's just do a JNA here and let's, let's turn this up. Hey, they've built this for me before they have a big brand name. Let's do this before. And I think that was hurtful in a lot of ways. What I do hope was helpful was them saying that they can't, they can do it, right? That we can move quickly if we want to, um, and that we can create a more efficient process around just 
getting materials, right? Let's put services aside, just materials, right? Like we don't have to make this so hard. Um, maybe do your due diligence, make sure that they actually have the products in hand that they say that they're going to sell you. Um, but, you know, we can we can streamline this. It doesn't need to be an entire solicitation process to acquire Clorox wipes or pencils or, or, or things like that, you know. And when it comes to service providers, we can also streamline that to build things for the good for the tracking. Um and that, we, you know, we, it doesn't have to just always be done from the office and it doesn't have to be a 72 step process, even though the federal government, right, has red tape for a reason and a lot of legal things to make sure our taxpayer dollars aren't just, you know, just utilized in the wrong way, which might have happened during this the COVID streamlining process. But I think there's a there's a healthy balance. And I think we saw the pendulum swing one way during COVID and it, hopefully we can find a happy medium with those lessons learned. Right. And there's other things that just happened to the process too that I, I hope are here to stay. So you talk about like moving to a more virtual environment and, and what that looks like. You've seen that industry days are virtual now. You've seen that orals presentations are virtual now. And so those kind of things help just streamline the procurement process on the bitter side. And I hope those things are here to stay. Yeah, I, I think it, like you guys touched on, I, I think there's a lot of lessons learned that that can certainly be incorporated. Obviously, the everything that they did over the past two years, you don't want to have to operate in a uh, in a, an emergency or like a wartime state all the time. Um, but but to your point, Amber, knowing that they can go that fast if they need to, um, should be able to give them a little bit of easement and inspiration to say, hey, we can make this this more foundational uh, process a little bit quicker and a little bit easier for the stakeholders. I mean, we're talking about the process. This all leads to opportunity, right? Um, Lisa, what are some of the biggest opportunities that you're seeing in the market right now? So opportunities in terms of what types of contracts are out there, opportunities for partnership, you know, there's uh, so many different options out there. I know Amber is really the one that tracks sort of the contracts in terms of the pulse. So Amber, do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah. So, you know, back you know, a few minutes ago, right, where we were referencing the congressional testimony on category management, something that I believe is I'm seeing a shift and I don't have any data to fully back this up yet, even though I would love to look into it. So I think there is a possible pendulum shift back into internal IDIQs and direct delivery orders as complications and delays continue with best in class contracts and government wide vehicles. Um, you know, I only have some anecdotal evidence based on that, but you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, government buyers and end users that kind of were left holding the requirement saying, where do I go? You know, as SP 3 and Alliant 2 Small Business got pushed, you know, there's only, you know, they can bring it to Oasis possibly, right? And there's only a few places they can go. And so I think that there's been a lot of frustration um, with the protests, with the pulling back of these vehicles, where you might be seeing federal agencies kind of create their own IDIQs and internal BPAs again, or just doing, you know, direct uh, orders and awards. Um, another thing too, as far as opportunities go, uh, is kind of looking at the lesser famous agencies to do impactful work. You know, the current administration has dumped a lot of money 
uh, rightfully so, a new funding into agencies like the National Science Foundation that provides a lot of opportunities for vendors providing everything from administrative services to building of cybersecurity policies and offices to actually, you know, just handing and material and building the new office space. And, you know, agencies like USDA, uh, they're getting a boost in their R&D budget, so much so that they've announced that they're going to be able to offer STTR awards in, you know, fiscal year 23. So there's a lot of different opportunities out there on the way that, you know, the look at the market and the way it's shifting that's maybe not so obvious, right, in, in the faces of it. We all get so distracted by the large government-wide multi-billion dollar IDQs where just if we were to lift up a few rocks, right, you know, there's there's great opportunities staring us right in the face to make an impactful difference. I am hopeful, you know, based on like Amber's testimony that Congress really does see the need for increased small business utilization. I'm hoping that, that there will be increased opportunity for small businesses to get out there and get access to contracts. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that things like small business um, goal percentages will increase. So, you know, here's, here's hoping there's some change made. You mentioned, you mentioned IDIQs in there. Um, one of the guests I had on a few episodes ago, we had talked about some of the trends happening and he talked about IDIQs and the research that he did saying that hitting the ceiling at IDIQs is very, very rare. In fact, they're not leveraged as, <laughs> as much as they should. Um, I can tell this, this is something you guys are very familiar with. I, I'm curious to know, knowing that if you are working with a small business who maybe have been awarded on an IDIQ, what are some of the recommendations you make and advice you give them to maximize their opportunity when they are in that environment? Oh, this is a good one. This is a good question because this is a pet peeve of ours too. You know, you talk about contract value versus contract ceiling value, right? And there has been too often that small businesses have been awarded IDIQs and they're like, we have, you know, a hundred million dollars. And we say, no, you don't. <laughs> you have potential access to compete against a hundred million dollars. And so, you know, what we always have to tell them is one, you have to have a task order response shop just set up to leverage the task orders as they get released. Um, you know, because if you don't have that sort of internal capability and maybe you're outsourcing it, then that's part of your bid and proposal budget and that can get very, very costly. And so you might not even really see a return on investment if you have to outsource an entire proposal response shop for each of those task orders, depending on the type of IDIQ it is. Um, and then even so, some of them are just churn and burn, right? Amber and I have worked with a client where we had to help them respond to over 80 task order proposals under an IDIQ. And it wasn't anything too crazy. It wasn't like you had to do full technical responses, but they still had to be set up correctly. They had to be compliant and it had to be this sort of administrative task that had to get woven throughout an organization because you still had to do staffing and price and technical and then submit it. Um, so really having that sort of internal shop is, is what we talk about. And then, you know, obviously talking to your customers, making sure that they're aware of your capabilities, you know, for that IDIQ say, hey, this is this is who we are. This is what we can do. And just making sure that you impress them. Yeah. And, you know, one other point of recommendation I, I would put out there is bring work to the vehicle, be the salesman for that vehicle or saleswoman or salesperson, uh, you know, I don't know, but sell that vehicle because 
there's a lot of, you know, RFIs and market research out there saying, hey, we have this requirement and we're probably just going to compete it under T4IMG or we're going to compete it under Oasis because, you know, that's the most easy thing to do. When you're responding to those, you are allowed to make another suggestion saying, hey, this vehicle that we have access to, this IDIQ, if it's for the same agency, if it's internal, um, you know, we have, you have this vehicle and, and this is a great place to compete that as well. You know, a lot of, you know, people may think that agencies are fully aware that they might be sitting, you know, at their computers and they have a full list, right, of all the vehicles that they have access to. That that doesn't exist. Um, I, you know, if there is someone out there that has that like poster, let me know. Um, I think that would make a really cool branding thing. I'd love to see it. Um, but that doesn't exist. You know, they they only know what they know and what they're used to. So going out there and bringing work to those vehicles, helping them access them, educating them that they are accessible to them. Um, can make all the difference. And again, that's a lot of legwork, but it's easier to go right competing on an IDIQ where maybe there's three of you versus a government-wide vehicle where there's 300 of you. I think that's that's really good advice because I think oftentimes you you sit when you win those because you're so happy you're on it. You sit and you wait for those, those task orders to come out and really being uh, opportunistic and, uh, and aggressive in, in the opportunities I think is important. Another thing is, and, and I found this in my work, you don't necessarily have to have direct access to the vehicle to leverage the vehicle. Um, we, we worked with partners that were on IDIQs that, especially during the pandemic, when we were trying to uh, quick turn a, a procurement and the government was trying to quick turn a procurement, it was just a, the, the ability to strategize and find out which partner had access to which vehicle that made sense for us to fast track it. So I think Absolutely. any small business out there, just because you haven't won that IDIQ, if you have a partner ecosystem and they're on different contracts, it's absolutely advantageous for you to understand what that contract ecosystem looks like across your partners to make sure you can leverage those. That's a great point. If you don't work your IDIQs and they just become the participation trophies of government contracting. I love that. I'm gonna put that on a poster. <laughs> so Lisa, you had talked about um, some compliance issues mm. as well previously that are impacting the market, especially barriers to entry for some of the small businesses. What are some of the compliance issues right now that you're seeing that are impacting the market? Yeah, I mean, so it's no secret, of course, there are barriers to entry. And it is for good reason. You know, Amber was talking about the efficacy of spending taxpayer money. We know that we need them. But we also know that this can impact especially small business success and the amount of red tape can really turn small shops just completely away from contracting when they could have something really beneficial to offer. Um, and so, you know, there's a bunch of different ones out there that you'll see. You'll see things like DCAA compliance. You see, you know, um, proposals requiring things like ISO certification, or of course, we all saw CMMC. And I guess my suggestion for companies, if they're struggling with these compliance challenges that we know the market necessitates is just to be selective and not collective. That seems silly um, and is alliterative, but it's this idea of if your market isn't defense, 
then you probably don't need a DCAA compliant accounting system. You know, if your customer doesn't require ISO certification, then you probably don't need ISO 5001. And with all the changing requirements, you probably don't need to be prepared to be CMMC level three, which was just previously CMMC level five, you know, until yeah. things get solidified. <laughs> if I could jump on there, one yeah. more barrier to entry, especially if we're talking about small businesses or even midsize is the capital to sustain your company as you wait to get paid mm. by the government or or your prime. And we see that take take down a lot of really good businesses sometimes. Um, and you know, there is a market now in government contracting that, you know, where uh, banks are starting to stand up that type of financing, which is fantastic. But you know, sometimes winning an award can take down your business. And that's something that isn't talked about enough. Right in the environment of LPTA and, and the lowest bidder, um, and then when it takes the government four to five months to pay you, or maybe even the prime to do that if you're subcontracting at those low rates and you're waiting to get paid and you're just setting up your shop, that's enough to close the doors on you, right? And that's a that's a massive barrier to entry sometimes. That's that's and that's really good point, really interesting. And you mentioned LPTA. I'm really curious to know how much have you seen government kind of get away from LPTA, especially in the environment when we were looking for certain best in class type of solutions coming in? Is it something that you still see as very prevalent? Or is this something that you're seeing hopefully sliding away? It does, so, okay, the term LPTA isn't coming up in solicitations as often. It feels, so, it literally feels like a four letter word to me. Right. So exactly. So you, you yeah. Don't, see it much, but what they've changed is they say best value where price is impactful. And that's the same thing. <laughs> it's the same. Yeah. It's, it's potato, potato, right? I don't know if we'll ever get away from LPCA if I'm being honest. I feel like it is so ingrained, right? You have to, like, you have to think about it, right? It's so ingrained as a government buyer, um, to like the lowest price just, it has been ingrained into you. But also you have to think about it as a human, right? Um, we like deals. We like sales. We like we like things like that, right? There's Amazon Prime Day and Nordstrom's anniversary sales coming up and things like that, right? Like we like to get things at a, at a massive discount. And you can't forget that that type of just inherent bias comes into it when you're buying for the government, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. Um you know, I don't know if we're ever going to get away from LPTA, but something that they are starting to do is on at least the government-wide vehicles that they are um, starting to not have you submit ceiling prices at the, you know, the top level and have you compete it out at the task order level, um, which just basically means you're not tied into rates, which, which, is, which is helpful during, you know, times of inflation or things like that, right? Um, it's a little bit harder to game plan as well, um, I think, for the government's sake, because you're not really able to figure out where your median prices are and kind of set your ICG. To me, I, I feel like it puts a lot more work probably on the government. Um, but we'll, you know, there's some places where they've done that before on IDEA because it's not a new idea by any stretch. Um, but we'll see if, is that going to change? LPTA, probably not, you know, as Lisa mentioned, uh, you know, it's just going to, you know, prolong, you know, prolong the process further. 
I mean, you see things like FAR Part 15 404-1, the proposal analysis techniques that reference things like cost realism. And you're seeing a lot more of that in solicitations too. And if you're not seeing it, you're seeing people ask about it in Q&A to get it incorporated, to try to get around this too. So it's because you see that this is the lowest price, but is it realistic to perform the work? You know, I think that's sort of a trend as well. Yeah. So if you're, if you're a company out there trying to compete in an LTP, LPTA environment, what are some of the, the strategies and recommendations you make to them? And I, I think navigating um, or, or negotiating the procurement process and getting ahead of the, the RFP and, and the, that RFI process and really understanding kind of what they're looking for and trying to influence what that RFP looks like, I think is one way to uh, hopefully combat it a little bit. But wh what are other strategies that you recommend to companies when they are in this environment? I mean, no one's going to like this answer. We tell people don't do it. Uh, we, we tell our clients, don't be the lowest bidder. Do not bid into the ground because it can take you out, right? You know, so unless there is an extremely strategic reason for why you need to do that and you need to be the lowest bidder and you need this award, um, we don't recommend doing it. Well, you're you know, setting a precedent. Yeah, we, we really don't. I, I, you know, there's not there hasn't been one time where I've told someone go as low as you can go. You know, what we always say is go as low as you can, where you can afford to pay people the right wages at the right time and, and keep them happy, you know, especially when you're talking about in the services environment, right? You know, so much, you know, okay, so you, you bid the lowest thing you can do and then, then you can't staff it. Right. And yeah. that, that looks worse than a, well, so than a let, loss. Let's look at the technically acceptable side of things though. And if you get away from the lowest, lowest price and, and bidding low, how do you influence and what recommendations do you make around influence that technically acceptable, right? Because you can really show value to the government, uh, the government buyer and, and the, uh, the, all the different personas across, across the process by showing them or educating them on what sh what that level around technical acceptability should be. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what we tell people with that is do it before the RFP process. Yeah. Do yeah. not do it in response to the proposal because then all they're going to see is dollar signs and that it's too expensive. I mean, I know Lisa, we recently worked with a, a you know, a client on that where they got feedback, right? On hey, this is too pricey. You didn't understand what we were asking even though you were trying to show value. Right. You have to really toe the line between showing innovative solutions and not, you know, excessive dollar signs. I think the best way to impact that sort of technical acceptability is really around the people, you know, especially if it's a contract that you'll have to staff, you'll have to put key personnel on because then the technical acceptability needs to be for like a program manager that has 20 years experience or one that has, you know, PMP. And that's when dollar signs start going up, right, is the more senior, the more advanced folks that are going to be on a contract. So if you're able to say, hey, in order to meet these needs, you really need people that have these certifications, these requirements, these trainings, that's how you impact technical acceptability and just increase it to a higher value. Have you noticed a change in the willingness to, I guess, I guess, uh, marginalize that baseline? of what they think is technically acceptable, especially with some of the, the private sector folks coming into government and understanding that I think they might have a different baseline around what technically acceptable <laughs> looks like, right? 
I, I mean, are, yeah. are you seeing that change? Um, the, we're seeing, we're seeing, uh, people from the public sector come in and be like, or the commercial sector and be like, what, they don't even know what they're talking about. This, this technology is 10 years old. There's no way they're using that. And we're like, ah, well, you'd be surprised. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately there's not much you can do. And what we tell them when you get to that RFP process um, what you can do and what sometimes we recommend a lot of our commercial clients that come in and want to bid and that, you know, they're like, there's no way we could actually in good faith give them this technically acceptable because it doesn't make any sense is we, we recommend submitting an alternative proposal. And if there's nothing in that RP that says that you can't definitely ask the question on, you know, can we, or it's better sometimes to ask for, um, you know, ask for forgiveness and ask for permission but the hard part, you know, Brian, is educating the client that way or the end user during that process once you're post the market research phase is that you're probably spending money just to educate. You know, very rarely is that going to go somewhere. And so you have to really believe in what you're educating. You know, that's the unfortunate part is you're pouring kind of money into something that might not have a direct ROI and it's hard to get convince people to do that these days. Um, you know, other things that we tell people is submit, um, you know, submit it in questions, submit, a, submit all the questions you want during our and, and, and show them. Will that work? Probably not. You know, um, will they because they've already gotten approved by legal and they're not going to walk it back. You know, but they're you know, unfortunately, a lot of these are just kind of trying to ask questions during you know, during the post solicitation phase and asking them saying, hey, this doesn't make any sense and, and asking very pointed questions which sometimes people don't like to do because it gives away their proprietary yeah. you know, knowledge, but that's the only way you're going to do it during that phase, you know, pre solicitation, like as we talked about many times, market research, putting out white papers, um, submitting things, uh, you know, to them saying, Hey, have you looked at this and educating them on that technology is always helpful. But the biggest thing when you're doing that is showing them not just the direct not just the impact of that technology but how it's going to directly impact them and what the programs that feeds into so you really have to spell it out for them in order to really make the impactful difference for them to, to go forward because what you're asking them to do is probably walk back a lot of requirements that they've worked the past year or five years on and no one has that time because they're also doing the job of like 10 to 15 people. Right. And that's what you're fighting against at the end of the day. I think that that's a really good point. Um, so this question is for both of you and, and Lisa, we can start with you. Is there one trend that you think listeners should know that you're, that you're following that, that you can kind of expound on a little bit and, and kind of teach them something that might be something they, they should be looking to in the future, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that you could cover. Something that I think people need to be mindful of and something that Amber and I have harped on and, and written about is the impact of private equity companies on the middle market for government contracting and what that means for small businesses as they as they graduate into that sort of no man's land of being a quote unquote mid-size company. You know, we, we've seen it before where if you graduate outside of like the 8A program, uh, companies have a hard time scaling it and moving beyond that because if you're not small, then you're large, uh, even though you're really medium. <laughs> and, and so what we've been seeing as a trend, and I mean, 
merger and acquisition is just absolutely continuously running rampant in our industry and that companies merge together and then they sort of split off again. And it's just a continuously moving cycle of companies building up, 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 and then kind of shrinking back down. We haven't really seen the shrink yet, but as we have kind of, you know, 15 years ago, um, but just recognizing that once you, once you grow, if you're really not attracting private equity firms that have been more and more inclined to invest in government contractors in the last couple of years, then you just might not see as much success. Um, you know, a lot of, we've done a, an article on this where just PE firms are coming in because these small companies can't actually scale to, to grow large enough to compete against, you know, the Booz Allens or the Raytheons or, or what have you. So that is just, you know, it's a pretty obvious one. It's one that we've all seen, but it's just still continuing. Yeah. And if I could spin, a, Lisa kind of stole mine, but I'm going to spin this one another way. Um, Cause I saw, I've seen this now twice on social media on LinkedIn and like, it was like a, like a billboard sign. This, the buying of vehicles, you know, I don't think, I don't think people realize that you don't have to always just be bought as a company or acquired or merged in order to, for someone to take your vehicles. People can buy vehicles. Like it's, it's a crazy notion. Um, but it's always kind of been this little secret. You don't really talk about it because it kind of feels a little weird and icky. I have now seen a few times over the past few weeks, people legitimately advertising that they're selling their vehicles. Mm-hmm, I've seen that too. <laughs> Interesting. And, right? And it, like, it feels weird. Like I don't know how to feel about it. It makes me feel a little weird and it makes me feel icky. And it's also just like intriguing where I'm like, wow, is that where this is going? You know, like, cause it's like the, the modification of yeah. vehicle access. Yeah. What's, what's the point, right? You know, and what is the government doing to really manage this? You know, you have the novation process, but what's the point of having these socioeconomic vehicles? if the people are just going to sell them off, right. And competing and things like that. Um, so like, that's just, that, you know, that's not, that's just one point of a trend that I'm just finding really interesting to watch. You know, another thing as Lisa touched on, I believe earlier was changes in socioeconomic policies and how they're going to count towards the middle tier of category management that should make a really big change. Hopefully fingers crossed. Um, in the small business access to those government-wide vehicles, but but we'll see. Um, and then one more I always like to throw in there because I always feel like every year there is an article that says like GSA schedules are dead. They're not. Everyone's still using them. Everyone, they're heavily utilized vehicles. They're getting more and more usage now, especially in Q4 and especially with these government-wide vehicles being on, on, on a pause. Um, you know, that's one investment that you know is a timeless investment like a tiffany's lamp man get yourself you know (laughs) those won't go out of style (laughs) so this has been a great conversation as we're wrapping up i have i have one more question uh for both of you Um, whenever i bring women leaders on i always want like to ask them any advice they have for um maybe young younger females getting into the market especially in the technology space but a little bit of a twist I want to I want to put on this because you guys are both co-founders of this company. So, so I would like to ask some advice 
for women in business looking to start their own company to to do what what you both have done in in this environment i think it should be absolutely applauded um but it, what advice would you would you give to anybody looking to to start their own company yeah absolutely so first and foremost i wish that this question didn't matter um, you know, I, I wish through my hearts of hearts that there is no difference that Amber and I would be starting a business versus, uh, you know, anybody else of any other gender. But the unfortunate truth is that we have run into difficulties that our male counterparts potentially would not have. Um, and so that, that is a frustration. And so what I would say is advice for women looking to start their own company is just to, to know how to, mitigate those sort of challenges. And so something that I didn't know, this is a, a real life scenario, right? Is honestly, if you're starting a company or you're being an independent consultant or what have you, you're working for yourself. The first thing you have to do is identify a rate or a price and stick to it adamantly. You know, in the beginning, Amber and I had so many people try to downplay what we could offer. And this was in both service and in value. And so it became really easy to diminish our, our worth because we were too young, we were too inexperienced, we hadn't paid our dues, you know, blah, blah. We, we heard it all. Um, we heard that we were only successful because of the way we looked, which, hey, thanks, that's complimentary. Um, we don't think we're all that, but nice to know that that would even have any impact. Um, but we would tell people our rate and they would try to negotiate with us. And Amber will tell you, I always wanted to just absolutely fold like a napkin. They'd say, can we get a discount? Just like you were saying, it's human nature. Can we get a discount? I'd be like, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> we had to say no. Um, because what we had to learn is it had nothing to do with what we had to offer and everything with people just trying to take advantage of our kindness to get a deal. And in some ways, we just had to accept that that was business. But once we stopped trying to structure our business around people and their expectations and became more deliberate in what we wanted to do, you know, we found that our clients were one, higher in caliber, and two, we spent less time trying to convince people that what we offered was worth something. Yeah. And so I have two main pieces of advice. Um, my first being just just do it. If you want, if you want to do it, just do it. Um, you don't need a trust fund. You don't need help. It would help. I mean, listen, all these things would help. Um, but you, you don't need it. Uh, Lisa and I are completely self-funded, uh, completely bootstrapped on our own. Uh, we have not until recently, you know, until we started, you know, for the safety net of our employees, do we now have a line of credit? Um, but prior to now, over the past five years, it has been completely financed by us and paid for by our clients. Um, we have invested every dollar back into the business. Um, which has helped us grow a lot. And it's been extremely um, satisfying to watch a company basically that has been sustained by its success and by its clients and, and grassroots grown, which is hard to do. But if you want to do it, I say, you know, go for it. Uh, you don't need all of this venture capital funding. You don't need all these loans. You don't need all that. Just start with one, you know, start with day one. And if it fails, it fails, you know, there, you can go back to working, uh, you know, your W2 job and get better probably health benefits than you can, you know, there's some pluses of going back to the W2 world. Um, so if it fails, it fails, but you know, you, you try it, try it out. 
Um, my second piece of advice is to always admit and know what you don't know and know when you need to ask for help. And it, it, it's okay that you don't know it all. It's okay that you don't know what you're doing. Um, Lisa and neither of us have our degrees in building a business. and uh, We have no idea what we're doing. And every day we admit that we don't know what we're doing, but we're trying, right? And we're <laughs> learning and we are growing with this business and we're asking for help and for resources when we need it. And we're getting better at recognizing that and bringing experts in. But it's okay to be like, hey, I wanna do this business, but I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, you know, that that's okay to admit and surround yourself with people that are willing to support you and advocate for you and, and believe in what you're doing um, and be okay with walking away from the people that don't. Yeah, I, I think that's really good advice. And I think to anybody who would diminish kind of your value or your worth, I think you guys have, have proved how valuable you are to the market just by, and if, just by what, what we're talking about today and the, the value provided to the listeners today. So um, thank you both so much for being on here. I've enjoyed this conversation thoroughly. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thanks for having us. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcast wherever you access yours. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.